Welcome to the Foxy Podcast, a bi-monthly show brought to you by Freeform Freakout. The show is produced at KMSU Studios in Mankato, Minnesota, and here on the Foxy Podcast, we try to dig deeper into underground and experimental sounds of the past and present. And welcome to episode number 122 of the Foxy Podcast show. Hope you're all doing well out there, wherever you're listening from. We started off the show with a track from the Sky Green Leopards called Yellow is the Color of Bees. The Sky Green Leopards has primarily been the work of the San Francisco-based core duo of Donovan Quinn and Glenn Donaldson. And this track comes from a forthcoming release out on Soft Abuse Records entitled The Jingling World of the Sky Green Leopards, which gathers together some of the duo's earliest recordings that initially came out on the Jeweled Antler imprint back in the early 2000s. On this installment of the podcast, we'll be digging into that world of the Sky Green Leopards, both jingling and otherwise, along with the work of Jeweled Antler and much more with Glenn Donaldson. For the past two decades, Donaldson has been an active presence in underground and experimental music circles, contributing to numerous group efforts including Mirza, the Blythe Sons, Thuja, Flying Canyon, and the Art Museums, to name but a few. And over the years, he also has recorded under various solo monikers, such as the Bird Tree, Freeway, the Reds, Pinks, and Purples, and the Ivy Tree, a project that also recently had a new archival LP release out on Recital. Donaldson was the co-founder of the aforementioned Jeweled Antler, a name applied to both a collective of like-minded musicians and to the influential DIY label that he ran with Lauren Chassie that focused primarily on handmade CDR editions. In its roughly five years of operation, Jeweled Antler and its related projects created a distinctive sound world and approach that incorporated elements of folk, pop, drone, and psychedelia using traditional and custom-built instruments set within the sounds of nature itself, periodically referred to as nature psych. And I recently had a chance to speak with Glenn about several of these projects that he's been involved in over the years, which you'll hear throughout this show. And I'll admit, though, that we only scratched the surface of his output over the next two hours. Honestly, I think we'd need to do another two or three full shows to cover all of his creative activities. But to paint a fairly comprehensive picture, though, you will hear tracks from many of Glenn's various projects. And he also selected some other tracks to play by artists that were influential to him during his jeweled antler years. Before we get into all that, I thought I'd play just a couple more solo things that Glenn has done, starting with this one from the bird tree called Every One of Us, A New Leaf.
for the show, I was reminded of just how many groups that you've been involved in and how many solo projects you've had over the past two decades. So I honestly wasn't really even sure where to begin uh, with this with this interview, but I thought maybe just to get things started, if you could discuss some of your earlier groups, like coming out of Southern California and being involved in the group Mirza, and then sort of transitioning into your time in San Francisco and starting up uh, Jeweled Antler. Sure. Um, yeah, it is a lot of music. It kind of makes me tired just, just thinking about it. But <laughs> um, yeah, Mirza is the sound of uh, angry young men and college men <laughs> um, making noise. It start, actually starts in Santa Cruz while we were at the university there. And sort of starts off as noise rock and then kind of goes to, I don't know, sort of psychedelic. Someone uh, who joined the band who shall remain nameless introduced us to smoking weed while we played music, and I think that changed (laughs) the sound. (laughs) (laughs) Slowed things down a bit or mellowed things out a bit? Yeah, I think that was his intent. But, yeah, I mean, we were really into post-punk stuff, like birthday party, and then we start getting freaky, and it just starts to be free form, and that's when we actually kind of get good. I think mm-hmm. find our sound at least. Um, Steve Smith was in that band. We grew up together in Southern California, and ended up at the same university in Santa Cruz. Um, he played drums. And he was a fantastic drummer, mm-hmm. really heavy and crazy. And, of course, he's the one who later does Holostrana and a million other solo projects. Right, right. So what year, then, did you make the move up to San Francisco and really get into more of the, like, more of the improvised type stuff with Jeweled Antler? What what year was that? Well, Mirza ends up being really improvised, mm-hmm. and but it was still a rock band. Mm-hmm. 
but I think we hit a wall with doing all having all the rock band trappings, the practice space, the clubs with the weird sound men, <laughs> and everything was so loud, and we just wanted to just go get, get away from trying to be in a rock band and just focus on being creative and. That's sort of the transition from Mirza to Thuja, which is the thing that came after. And so that would be, I guess, around 1998 is when we started doing Thuja. So it was sort of a reaction to all the really loud music um, that was popular at the time. Kind of sarcastic noise music was big, I think. Mm -hmm. um, this like late 90s. And every band in San Francisco was just crazy and loud and trying to outdo each other. Um, for high-concept, loud, weird music. So I think we just sort of went the other way Sure, yeah. uh, as a reaction. I think we are just... Some people in the band probably just weren't even that interested in being in a band, so it was just sort of fell apart. And Thuja was just planned as, as an anti-band, as just sort of a gathering of creative musicians, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, we got together with our friend Rob, who had a warehouse space, um, was full of plants, and we would just play quiet, uh, improvised music. We didn't really plan it. We just sort of all landed there. I don't recall ever really discussing what it would be, but just that it wouldn't be rock. <laughs> right, right. Well, Jeweled Antler Projects did feature, would go on to feature kind of an interesting mixture of improvisation, uh, field recordings, folk, and even pop songwriting. And I guess with this idea of it being a, a quote-unquote collective, and I don't know if that was ever fully a part of the, the title of it, but did you guys have any certain like uh, principles musically or sonically that you wanted to achieve under this banner? I mean, you said like with Thuja that it just kind of happened. Was that a similar case when it became Jeweled Antler? I think we were all exposing ourselves to the most experimental and crazy music we could locate. Um, of course, it must be said, this is pre-internet times, so we were finding whatever strange record we could pull out of the used bin. Um, it's hard to put myself back in that mindset. Mm -hmm. I think we just... We did have a real aggressive, uh, we were really aggressive about trying to do something that was different and new. Um, and I think a big part of that was the field recording aspect, where we discovered that if you recorded outdoors, you got all kinds of happy accidents sonically, and there was all this atmosphere that you couldn't really achieve in a studio. And so that became a big part of Julian. So that, there was definitely something conscious about that. At the time, I was making field recordings with just a handheld cassette. And I think it was Lauren Chassis who we met up with um, around that time who just said, why don't we just record the whole thing outdoors rather than just adding field recordings to existing pieces like you'd hear in an, on a, you know, like a throbbing gristle record. Mm -hmm tapes uh, listed as an instrument and they'd have you know sounds that they gathered industrial sounds and added to the noise 
um, or samples, primitive samples. So it's sort of taking that to the extreme and just actually taking the entire music uh, outside. Mm-hmm. I think we were definitely really interested in industrial music and that, that post-industrial thing, um, like Soviet France and uh, that kind of thing. Just A more pastoral take on that, though. Yeah, like a pastoral take on, on, on experimental music. Um, we were also big into Einstrasende Neubauten, mm-hmm. um, the fact that they would take the whole entire band into a you know abandoned warehouse and use the space as part of the music. I, I remember it was like taking that into a California context, which was you know going to be much different in tone than sort of post-war Berlin. Right, right. A little more, a little more sunshine in that. So in a way, we were kind of like the hippie uh, version of that. <laughs> right. so I don't know if that paints the picture. Yeah, but... that makes sense, yeah. So, I mean, amidst all of this, um, there, there still was a definite folk, even pop sensibility, and I sort of felt like you were maybe the one person that brought that, and maybe I'm wrong, but it felt like some of the stuff that you were doing had more of that sort of folk songwriting element to it. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah. Like Lauren Chassie, he was really uh, good at atmospheres and 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 mixing in strange sounds and creating sounds, taking musical instruments and using them to make non-musical sounds, just uh, with contact mics and things like that. Um, that was a big part of what we did. But yeah, I was, I think we're all fans of pop and songs. But yeah, I was probably the one bringing that, more of that harmonic and songwriting element and trying to apply it to this abstract experimental kind of thing. Sure, yeah, yeah. It was an area that I thought was hadn't been explored as much kind of adding an emotional pop content to post-industrial music I felt like I felt like this was an area that that I could explore that really hadn't been fully turned into cliche Um, the idea of doing pop songs and folk songs uh, and just recorded outdoors using the space as part of the music, um, yeah, I just wasn't aware of too many things that had done that, so I was kind of pushing myself in that direction, hoping to to come up with a new genre almost. I yeah, guess. yeah. Well, while DIY publishing goes back, you know, several decades before you guys started, I do feel like Jewel Antler provided a fairly unique take on this, which I feel inspired others to start labels and start self-releasing their own music. Um, I, I kind of almost feel like that's the trickle-down effects of what you guys were doing are still felt today because when I was contributing to Foxy Digitalis webzine, I swear we'd get just hundreds upon hundreds of these different CDRs, handmade CDRs and tapes, and I just think the proliferation of all these tape labels almost feels like a kind of a, a, a continuation of that. I know this goes back several decades, as I mentioned, but I was wondering what, what motivations or inspirations that you guys had when you were starting to publish work under the name Jeweled Antler. Um, 
I grew up in Southern California, and I was a big fan of Independent Project Records, uh, which was the label of Savage Republic. Mm-hmm. And Bruce Litcher, I guess, I'm not sure if you pronounce it that way, he designed all the sleeves, and he had all these fantastic letterpress sleeves and, and silkscreen sleeves. Um, it seemed like everything on his label was part of the same world. And then there's this heavy art component with his sleeves. Um, that was definitely something I was into. I mean, other people that were involved in Jewel Antler were probably into other things, but that was, for me, um, my big influence, I guess. I'm trying to think. Well, Soviet France, they had all those wonderful sleeves that were really artistic and impractical, and, and they're probably very expensive on Discogs. <laughs> Right, like with metal and and sandpaper yeah, and stuff like that. And metal and so definitely that that factored in. I can recall being on tour and being in Germany, and some crazy guy we were staying with uh, just had this entire Soviet France collection. I was just mesmerized <laughs> um, and jealous. But yeah, so I guess those two things. And then also, I feel like I want to point out that Jewel Antler was, had no ambitions to be a label or to even have an audience. It was really a fun art project, and we really saw ourselves as being outside of, of being part of music. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was just each release was a little art project, uh, it sort of took off in spite of itself. I mean, we never did any promotions except for at some point we had a website that was just a Xerox piece of paper. Uh, <laughs> that was that was our big uh, marketing. Yeah, it was the Xerox catalog that was scanned. That yeah. was our website. Maybe it had a had a uh, picture of a forest or something. Right. right. But. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it was really sort of art for art's sake. It was a group of friends going outdoors, recording, and then turning that into a little a little art project of, of releasing CDRs. Um, so yeah, it's cool that people connected with it, and Aquarius Records started supporting it, and, and like other music, um, both great record stores now lost to time. Right, right. Um, I, when we first started doing it, I think Lauren was the one who proposed it. Uh, he and I did the bulk of the label, and he just bought one of those standalone CDR burners, and he's like, we should just have a label. And and uh, I was like, sure, I figure we sell, make 10 copies and just give them away to our friends kind of thing, and then it took off from there. Right. Most of them were like, like editions of maybe 50, 60 copies. Is that fairly consistent throughout the catalog? It really was, it really took off to where we probably sold a lot more than that. Oh, really? Uh, okay. Some titles, yeah, for sure. Um, it was almost to the point where I was working part time uh, as a freelance writer, um, music doing music journalism, mm-hmm. um, and I almost could make a living selling Jewel Antler CDRs and doing freelance work. Oh jeez! I mean, I wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> this is when San Francisco was still cheap, so right, right, right. It wasn't like an insane fortune I was 
<laughs> wasn't really cashing in off the uh, nature music, but <laughs> but it took off and it became more than we could handle, and that's eventually why I stopped doing it because I just it was, you know, we were at first doing a lot of handmade releases, and then it it was in between, you know, this handmade boutique thing and actually doing a label and pressing up CDs and which we in the towards the end we did press up a couple CDs just cuz it was overwhelming to make them by hand right well we should maybe mention um and this will segue into our first block of music but that jeweled antler library box set was one that eventually saw kind of an official uh, reissue and release back in 2008. Porter Records put it out, which they gathered together that whole series that you did. And if I remember correctly, they were all three-inch CDRs that were spread out in a monthly series. Is that correct? Yeah. I thought that was a pretty... That's one of my favorite things that we did. There's a lot of really neat stuff on those. Mm-hmm. You know, stuff that... It was where we sort of drew the Venn diagram of... of uh, our stuff and just other people's stuff around the world. There was some New Zealand stuff, and there was uh, oh, the Finnish folks. There was the Finnish folks. <laughs> there was Versaxa from the East Coast. Uh, there was Dead Raven Choir from Texas and Poland. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, that was a fun little series. Well, we're gonna actually play something from that box set. Uh, this is from the famous boating party and actually all the tracks that we're going to play in this set are kind of various projects that you were involved in. Um, I guess I span back the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years or so, starting with this famous boating party. What was the whole personnel again in in this group? I forgot to pull the box set out to look at that, but who was involved in this one? Famous boating party featured the wonderful vocals of Eleanor Harwood. She, I only really did that one project, um, and it was really just two recording sessions that were improvised songs. Mm-hmm. Um, Lauren Chassi played drums, and I played electric 12-string. And then I think, yeah, I overdubbed Casio here and there, but it was mainly just improvised, an attempt to do improvised uh, pop music. Um, she just sang the lyrics out of a Kenneth Passion book, Oh really? Just just riffing. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. I, that's actually my favorite uh, all-time Jeweled Antler release is that famous boating party, and I I wish we had done a proper album, but it just didn't work out. Um, yeah, she never really did any music since. That's the only thing she's done, and her voice was just amazing. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's uh, let people check this out. So this is again the famous boating party in a track called White Butterfly. <laughs> Thank you. 
Okay, that last uh, set of music again uh, featured a handful of collaborative projects that you were involved in. And you had kind of mentioned this uh, previously about living in San Francisco and uh, the rising costs that have happened there in the last few decades. And I was actually wondering, you know, how how things have changed for you living there. And, and has this had any direct effects on projects that, that you've been involved in over the years, like just losing people to can't stick around or things like that? San Francisco has definitely lost a lot of great people um, in the arts and all other 
walks of life. Um, it's really expensive to live here. I, I'm sort of I've sort of been able to survive, and a few people I know. But yeah, Steve Smith moved to LA years ago because he got scared off because um, of the way it was changing here. Um, come to think of it. There's really no one left from Jewel Antler here except for myself and Donovan Quinn mm-hmm. of Sky Green Leopards. Everyone else has moved on for various reasons, but definitely the cost of living, I think, drove them most, was the big biggest reason. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's still music going on here. I, um, some great stuff. I mean, Oakland... Across the bay has always been a little bit cheaper, so you have a lot of bands over there. But yeah, I, I feel like it's San Francisco will not attract the cutting edge artists anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just, it's just not possible for that kind of world to flourish here. Um, there'll still be things that coming and going, but I've been here long enough to see several waves of really exciting music happening that actually got to be world-class and, and popular even mm-hmm. way beyond the Bay and influential around the world of uh, indie music. Um, but I just don't really see that happening here again where there's that real strong force for uh, innovation and collaboration in music. But for tech, definitely. There will yeah. be that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but what can we do? Every city in America that's worth living in has the same issue. Yeah, right, right. Well, kind of going back to that that Jewel Dantler stuff and, and and the releases, like the limited nature of some of that material, and I guess some of the long-term issues with like CDR format, uh, disc rot or something like that. Oh, um, have you uh, have you entertained the idea of, of reissuing more of this material in the years ahead? And we'll talk about some recent things that you have coming out, but... Um, is that something that you'd like to do, kind of like that jeweled antler box set that came out? Like, get more of that material out there, or is it just something that you'd rather move on from? I suppose if someone had an interest and wanted to put some resources behind it, I, I definitely would. Um, but I'm also cool with it, some of it being lost to time. I mean, I, I always felt like a lot of the releases, and they're just little snapshots, I thought of them as postcards. Uh, oh, this is a thing that happened this one afternoon in the forest or in someone's living room that was special. And uh, yeah, I guess I don't really care if it's necessarily. Um, some things I feel like, oh, this is one was this release was more substantial. Maybe it deserves to be on vinyl. And I'm definitely open to <laughs> anyone that's interested to get in touch. But um, yeah, I don't know. I felt like what we did was really special and unique, but then, of course, there was several other labels that I was really into at the time. Um, like Pseudo Arcana comes to mind. Um, there was Lal Lal Lal, which is a Finnish label. And uh, let's see who should I shouldn't leave out. Leighton Craig, his kindling stuff, and whatever he was putting out. Um, those labels were inspirational too just just discovering them there's celebrate side phenomenon too he probably was doing cdrs before us i bet um and he had a great look to all his stuff too it had had um he cut up wallpaper for each release mm. so 
released was a different wallpaper pattern. Yep, yep. I remember getting, yeah, there was all that stuff, uh, a lot of New Zealand connections at that time. Yeah, I think it was just an accident. I mean, the, the internet was still pretty new, and I don't recall being online all that much. Um, there was emails coming in, um, but it was really still the mail art, you know, it was right. trading stuff in the mail. I think people definitely still do it with tapes and things now. Um, but you, you would write letters to people. Yep, yeah. <laughs> um, instead of just sticking the tape in an envelope, you'd actually get letters from people about, like, various things. But, yeah, it, it's definitely getting into the, the Internet era, and so things are going pretty global at that point. Right, right. It's a, it's a weird mix. It was the crossover between still reading fanzines, and getting tons of stuff in the mail, and and also going online. Well, this past month saw the release of Unburdened Light on Recital that features some previously unreleased material from your solo project, The Ivy Tree. And, uh, you know, after hearing this release, it got me thinking about, like, what other recordings you all might have on, on tapes or mini discs from this very prolific jeweled antler period. So I was just wondering, you know, do you have quite a bit of unreleased material still lying around from like that era? I should take a picture of the box of tapes I have and so you can post it along with this uh, podcast, but there's a box of cassettes and mini discs and reels. It's just kind of overwhelming. I don't really know what's on a lot of it. The unburdened light stuff was, intended to be a follow-up to that Winged Leaves CD that was on Ketchup Plate, mm-hmm. um, and then some bits and pieces I still had laying around. Um, and there's actually, come to think of it, there's another collection of Ivy Tree stuff coming out. Um, so, yeah, there is a whole other album. <laughs> oh, wow, yeah. A few compilation tracks and just unreleased, more unreleased uh, stuff. So, yeah, there is there is quite a bit. Um I wasn't good at archiving anything. I'm kind of a slob and just I'm not organized in that way. <laughs> so it just tapes and tapes where I just fill up a tape with something and not even write on it what the, what's on the tape. So <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever really go into the box again, but maybe I don't know. Yeah. There's a lot of there's definitely a lot of unreleased sort of aimless jamming. Yeah. <laughs> There could be a whole other uh, jeweled antler unreleased box set lying in there, huh? Just, just call it like endless, nameless, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> made. Um, yeah, there's definitely a lot. I don't, I don't know. It's probably not worth hearing. <laughs> At the time, we were pretty good about, even though we did put out a lot of sort of formless, uh, noodly things, jamming things. Uh, we tried to keep it tight with the editing, so probably all the best moments came out. Oh yeah, years I hope, but <laughs> there's probably a few little nuggets in there. Yeah. yeah. Well, you also have a new reissue of early Sky Green Leopards material coming out on Soft Abuse. I think here just in the next few weeks or so, it's called the Jingling World of the Sky Green Leopards, and I, I kind of was a uh, which I love the title. <laughs> that, um, I was trying to piece together the entirety of this track list, and it, it's the first two CDRs that appeared on Jeweled Antler. And is there a couple like 
three or four unreleased tracks too. I was there's a few more than what appeared on the originals, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it's the entire first CDR and some of the second CDR, plus three or four tracks no one ever heard that would just lost tracks. Okay. And then if you buy it on Bandcamp, there's also the rest of whatever was left from that era. So there's like 24 tracks on the digital version. But yeah, it's basically the early, it's 2001 for us of Skyrim Leopards. Right. And we recorded a lot of music. that We were improvising a lot in that band too back then. So it, the idea was sort of like this imaginary pop band and we would just lay down tracks and we would just go at it. It was pretty funny. I mean, we, we thought of it as kind of silly and there's definitely a big humorous element to it, but a lot of the, the tracks barely crack the two minute mark. It's very like knocking them out, very playful pop music in a lot of places. Yeah, we definitely weren't taking ourselves too seriously and just you know, having fun. I had just purchased an 8-track, um, a Tascam 388, the legendary um, quarter-inch 8-track, which kind of launched the garage scene here <laughs> later. Um, and we would just, yeah, fill up the track. It was just like such a luxury having 8-tracks, going from 2-track or 4-track, which is how we started out. Um, and then, wow, we had an 8-track. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> your full psychedelic uh, band dream because if computers are so absurd I mean you can really fill up track after track and edit after edit and we were doing everything so technologically crude back then I mean we were editing on tape mm -hmm. uh, our music you know I would even if I recorded something digitally say if I recorded outdoors on a mini disc I would use it cassette machine to uh, edit it and overdub onto the music. <laughs> it, there was an intentional kind of... I was trying to think... It's so long ago now. I was trying to put myself back in the mindset, but I think the fact that the internet and technology really was taking off right around then, um, the turn of the turn of the century, that Jewel Antler was a bit reactionary and to kind of go back to this kind of more crude more primitive thing or what we pre thought of as primitive. Um, it's kind of, that's kind of pretentious, but <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, going outdoors and, and uh, you know, making music in the woods. I mean, doesn't that sound sort of, I don't know. I guess neo-primitive is a horrible term. <laughs> right. But very reactionary to, I guess we could see the writing on the wall that things were going in this this other direction with people being online more and more. Right, right. And so we were being more and more in real life, which that term didn't even exist yet. Um, mm -hmm. that, you know, IRL term or whatever. Yes, yeah. Um, so I think we sensed that that was the coming reality we were facing. <laughs> Well, we're going to play uh, the title piece here from uh, The Unburdened Light. And you were saying that essentially this was, I mean, this was a fully prepared album, you said, but there was just a few extra ones that were tracked on, or tacked on for this version? 
Yeah, it was the material I was working on and just sort of abandoned. Um, and then there was just some bits and pieces I had lying around that, that were from the same, they're on the same cassette where mm -hmm. I discovered those songs. And uh, I definitely did a little tidying up. I'm sort of glad that didn't come out till now because now I'm, I kind of work at, uh, with, with digital exclusively and the digital technology now for editing is, is just, you know, incredible. And so I was able to actually make it sound fairly decent. Um, whereas maybe before it's a little, a little bit rough for modern ears. <laughs> <laughs> well, here is uh, the unburdened light again from the Ivy tree. We are the 
you took a break uh, from doing a label after Jewel Antler ended, and then roughly, but was it like 2014, you got back to doing Fruits and Flowers, uh, a label with Chris Berry of Soft Abuse, and uh, a guy that's been on this show a few times over the years. Um, what what made you want to get back into publishing other people's music again? And uh, maybe it, maybe as a follow up to that, the label has remained focused primarily on Bay Area bands with more of a bedroom pop feel. Is that something that you you want to uh, keep the focus on for the label? Uh, let's see. Um, yeah, whenever artists get together to collaborate in, on anything, it's always fraught with danger, and uh, Jewel Handler was no exception. So uh, it fell apart, and um, I was tired of going to the post office. <laughs> you know, I couldn't, couldn't take another trip to the post office. It was just... So I took a break from that, and Chris Berry actually sent me a message saying, oh, I, I've got a good name for something, Fruits and Flowers. He just had that name. I can't remember what the context was. And later on, it just occurred to me that it would be neat to have a, a label that concentrates on, yeah, sort of bedroom pop, I guess, or just pop music that's earnest and but where the songwriter has got a unique take on it. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe sort of there's something off about it, but it's trying to be pop, and it's maybe never going to be pop, but, you know, just, just unique songwriting uh, voices. Um, sort of a genre that's, I don't know, it's not really, can't really define it for myself, but um, something me and Chris Barry are into, just, yeah, outsider pop, I guess. Mm-hmm. But, you know, um, yeah, I think we're going to do more of the same. Uh, I think we wanted to do some releases that were going to be a little a little bit more strange, but still vaguely in that guitar pop world. Um, yeah, I don't know. I do, We just kind of know it when we see it. It, it, it ended up being a lot of friends and peers of mine who I just really loved their work and thought they deserved to be on vinyl and and I could turn Chris onto it and Chris has got a good ear for like strange music and yeah it's just just kind of a fun project I guess yeah um, we don't we don't I mean you know how Chris is he puts out music for the love of it he's not ambitious in in it um for anything other than this should exist in a bin somewhere. Yeah. Right. You know, even though only you know hundred people are going to understand this, it's it's worth um, pressing onto vinyl or getting out there in some fashion. So you know, kudos to him. He's definitely one of my favorite people. Right. Right. I was just wondering, you know, with uh, with the focus being on on vinyl now, you know, like that that seems to be. L- the format of choice um, and in this particular period. Do you, in some ways, though, miss, uh, I guess, the creative risks that you could take, like with the jeweled antler and the CDR format? I mean, you have to be more uh, conscious and uh, bottom line oriented in some extent when you're putting out records because it just costs so damn much. Um, do you miss yeah, that aspect of the label? I'm pretty excited about I've for a beat 
it's been years now, but Bandcamp was a real revival for me. Here's a chance to do something similar with with uh, no overhead, really, except making the music, whatever it costs you to make the music. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the only cost is your creativity. Um, but, yeah, I thought that was a really exciting development where people could curate their own label online. Right. Um, yeah, so I guess Bandcamp takes up that mantle. You can just put out whatever you want. And some of these... Bandcamp releases are really successful, and they these artists become you know name brand artists on on big labels. So yeah, so I guess I don't miss it. Um, the CDR format is, let's be honest, it's kind of crappy. I mean, <laughs> the sound is fine, but you know half of them would end up being bad, or you get skipping sounds, and it wasn't a great format. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but I loved how. If you did get a decent CDR, the sound would be the same essentially as a CD. So it was great for what we were doing, which involved field recordings and abstract sounds. So you get a very clean representation of that, whereas a tape would be more noisy or lo-fi. Um, so I think our music of Jewel Antler definitely fit in that clean CDR world. But it would fit now on Bandcamp, too, if we were still active. Right, right. I just wanted to talk about some things that you have coming up here. Now, you mentioned that in addition to the Sky Green Leopards record that you have coming out, there is another Ivy Tree release that you said down the road. Is that anything you can mention yet, or is that too far out? Sure. Yeah, that, that's. Uh, I think it's going to be called The Pillar of Clouds. And Leighton Craig, who does I mentioned earlier does Kindling, is going to release that in some form. I'm not sure what it will be yet, but that'll be, you know, maybe later this year sometime. What else do you and uh, Chris Berry have lined up with uh, Fruits and Flowers? Uh, Let's see. So there's a Michael O. single um, that's in the pipeline. It's all finished. Um, And that hopefully will be out later this summer. Um, That's Michael O. uh, from The Mantles his solo project and he and I record that together in my studio in Bellinas. Um, uh, let's see what else do we got for now. It's just the Michael. Oh, there's also perhaps an Oilies single. Mm. That, uh, another friend of mine, Carly Putnam, um, her solo project. Well, you picked out some tracks here to to round out this last block of music, and you had mentioned to me uh, prior to to talking here that a lot of these were artists uh, and tracks that you were listening to kind of during, I guess, that prime jeweled antler era. Is that correct? Yeah, I was trying to rack my brain to see, to remember what songs I was really getting inspired by and and uh, yeah, this little batch of songs is de- are definitely important to me for various reasons. Maybe we could, we'll just quickly run through what you have here just so you can maybe mention some things because there are some personal favorites of mine too. Definitely oh. a cherry red thing going on here too. Cherry red. Yeah, I mean, I guess I should have mentioned earlier cherry red. That label was a big influence. They just had this wonderful pastoral in the age of post punk kind of thing, and I think that was definitely a jeweled antler uh, touchstone. Um, they always had, you know, the album covers would be like waving wheat and mm-hmm. 
ago. Um, people in sweaters, you know, wandering outdoors. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, that was a big deal. And plus, you know, it was hard to find... I was trying to recreate the time for myself. It was hard to find, you know, experimental music. I mean, you couldn't just hunt it down online. You'd have to sort of saw what popped up at stores. And, yeah, so there'd be, like, a record by, say, Eilis in Gaza, which... You know, it's just a strange band. It would always be, you know, a really cheap record you could find and it ends up being this incredible thing. Right, right. So a lot of the stuff that shaped what we did was based on records we could afford from the, you know, cheap used bins. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, I was glad that you chose these first two tracks here. One is by uh, Camberwell Now, which was a uh, This Heat offshoot project of Charles Hayward's. And then... He followed up with uh, the Garbage and the Flowers, a great uh, band from Down Under, and I love the record Eyes Rind as if Be- Beggars, which this track comes from. But uh, you were telling me that you believe Camberwell now is better than this heat. <laughs> Do we need to debate? No, just kidding. <laughs> Camberwell now. Well, let's see. Lauren Lauren Chassie probably turned me on to Camberwell now. I was I was already into this heat, but I didn't know about Camberwell now, and he's like you know, early on in our friendship being like, well, you know, have you heard Camberwell now? That's like, you know, you're trying to one-up each other, <laughs> you know, intense music knowledge. Um, yeah, something about Camberwell now and, and the sort of folk influence in there, the, all this kind of singing that goes on and, and how it's based usually based off a drone. And that was definitely influential in Bly Sons and Ivy Tree, just kind of sort of this cracked take on traditional kind of folk singing, um, which is a really cool component of this heat too. But Camberwell now is kind of more, even more so, I'd say. Um, garbage in the, the Garbage in the Flowers, I, I picked up that Eyes Rind as if Beggars. You know, if you can put yourself in the, go back in time to when you just buy albums based on the cover, mm-hmm. um, without sight unseen, without hearing it, that was... The case there because the original sleeve was hand painted, um, so I just bought it because it had a hand painted sleeve and it was it was cheap. Um, mm-hmm. Ended up being this incredible record. Right, right. And loves come slowly now. I think I even covered that song at some point, but I was pretty fixated on that song. I think if you listen to all these, you can kind of squint and hear. Ivy Tree and some of the other stuff I've done. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say there. I can get more of the uh, the folk side of things in this block of music here. Right. I was in Gaza. That was just, they were, man, what a fantastic band. And still people aren't really hip to them. Really experimental. And they even did some stuff that was very freeform, kind of almost like, like Jewel Antler-ish. Um, there was that record, Pale Hands I Love So Well, which was from the early or mid-80s that's, completely abstract um, sounds. Um, but then they always brought this great emotional and poetic um, thing too, almost too much so. Just, right. His- and I think, I think even though we were trying to do something experimental, I think some of us, we always agreed that it was great to sort of, I don't know, have a real human element that was maybe at times even embarrassing because it was just 
revealing too much, and I think that's an element in there too. Mm-hmm. Alice in Gaza has that in spades, you know. It's <laughs> just like hard to take for most people. Right. I think it's the voice that can do it for some people. Yeah. Oh. And if you've ever heard some, like the child readers, um, that's another. And uh, Jason Honey's vocals, I felt like he's got an Alice in Gaza um, quality to what he does. Yeah. Um, Stormport, that Alistair Galbraith track, I mean, that's just like a blueprint for, you know, everything there. Just, <laughs> you know, a cassette machine, you know, almost as loud as the music and uh, just a fantastic little, you know, three-chord pop song or whatever. Um, All within a minute long. Bathed in tape hiss. I mean, yeah, it's only a minute, three seconds. Um yeah, so there's your blueprint there. I mean, like you could also throw in Tall Dwarves right. um, and anything from the Expressway label. That was just such a fantastic label. Right. And you could find those kind of CD reissues of that stuff around that time. Um, so that was a big deal um, for us. And, then and the- ben Watt, that Ben Watt solo stuff, I don't know if you've, you're familiar with it, but it's just the, that, that kind of, yearning in his voice and how it's just sort of naked and and uh emotive but also dark and mysterious too Mm -hmm. it actually kind of reminds me we were sharing some things about robert wyatt it has almost a little bit of that quality to it this track does yeah robert wyatt well they did a record together too right right that cd um i could have put a robert wyatt track in because i mean there's this fantastic record he did call it a short break that was all, I think, four-track. And, uh, yeah, Robert Wyatt was one of our big influences. And Brian Eno, of course, he did right. that on-land record. And we were definitely listening to all that stuff. Um, I think, but most everyone does. <laughs> right. has, has their Eno phase or something like that? Yeah, almost everyone likes Eno. And <laughs> most people like Robert Wyatt that are exposed to it, I think. But yeah. those, well, are, those are, you know our gods right well i'm going to get into this uh last block of music here starting with camberwell now on the track wheat features our futures excuse me wheat futures from the uh, ghost trade album and uh glenn thanks so much uh for taking the time to uh to chat no problem thank you for putting this together and i hope it's not too boring
been away for so long It must be all of three days now And I thought I would be strong But your record's the only one that Time to dance with you And this cold hasn't helped at all And the nights seem many But they've been few
that's going to bring this episode to an end. I'd like to thank Glenn once again for taking the time to speak with me and for providing some of the music to play on this installment. If you'd like to find out the complete playlist for this show, you can go to our website at freeformfreakout.com. There are links that you can follow to bring you to each of the releases that we played. Or if you have any questions or comments, you can always get in touch with me at fffreakout at hotmail.com. Check back in a couple of weeks for a new episode. I have another feature show in the works that I'm hoping to do in a few weeks. But until then, thanks so much for listening. <laughs>